let's do this really simply today. You know, the kind of person that believes in you before you believe in yourself, that's the kind of person you want to have around you. And I mean this sincerely. The first person that decided to back my Kickstarter for the seven-figure marketing mindset for novelists to get into classrooms with college students who otherwise are going to graduate with no idea how to run a business with their writing, that book solves that problem for them. The first person to back my campaign, and I, I realize in retrospect, he didn't even ask questions. He just recognized, I guess, my heart and offered to support. He said, can you get me a client? And I said, yeah, I think I can. And he backed the campaign. Um, his name is Tony Schmitz. He runs an insurance agency. Unfortunately, you can't work with him unless you're in the Midwest. But if you're in Nebraska, Colorado, Iowa, or any surrounding state, check Schmitz Insurance Agency Incorporated. You can call his office directly at 402-895-3663. The kind of person who will support a person, another person, the kind of person who will support another person in accomplishing their dreams is the kind of person that you want to have insurance with because that's the person who's going to be on the level with you. How could I give a higher recommendation? Really excited that he has sponsored this podcast and the book to get out into the world would love. If you have insurance needs, reach out to Tony Schmitz at the Schmitz Insurance Agency. I will have links to his website in the show notes. The only other thing I'm going to say here is this episode is hands down far and away the best episode of The Reluctant Book Marketer that has ever happened. And it's not because of anything I did. It's because of the people that I'm speaking to. Michael J. Sullivan and Robin Sullivan simply have the most amazing way to build an audience, to write great books, and to connect those two things together. I need you to re-listen to this episode. That's assuming you listen to the full thing. I'm front-loading it with my favorite part of the episode, and that was really difficult to do, but they are dropping gem after gem after gem. It's a longer episode. If you quit listening early, you don't care about writing. You don't care about selling your book. You should just quit right now. They have better information than anything I've ever put out there so far with anybody I've spoken to. I'm so confident in their path that I want everybody to hear about it. So please share this with a friend, share this with another writer, share this with somebody who needs some hope that their book can get out there. Michael J. Sullivan and Robin Sullivan are doing the most amazing work in marketing that I can think of. There is practical tip after practical tip in this episode, so I'm not going to blather on anymore. Get to listening, and thank you. If you don't present your artwork as if it is the best that it can be, then no one else will. So you have to present it in a light that this is worth your money, and it is worth paying a good deal of money for my artwork. And I'm going to present it to you in the best possible light, because if you don't do that, no one else is going to believe it either. And the fact of the matter is, if you do a really good piece of art and you present it and you sell it at a price that it's worth, people respect that and they will actually give you more time. Hey, I'm the Reluctant Book Marketer, and I've got just one question for you. Do you see your novel as a million dollar asset? Because if you don't, and you want to, 
you're in the right place. This is the only show for novelists who want to shift their mindset away from fear and toward abundance. Because you can sell more books than you ever dreamed when you believe in what you're doing. Okay, so I do. We're we're a marketing mindset podcast, so I want to start out with something that uh, actually Michael said um, in one of his previous podcasts. But he he said, if you do what we're doing, you can build generational wealth. Um, mm-hmm. And and there's a mindset behind what you started to do that I want to dig into before we go too far, because yeah. you've you've published through through Orbit and you've gone the traditional route but you're now doing everything kind of you're fulfilling your own orders and you're controlling your destiny. And it's pretty clear that, that that's the right choice for you. How about somebody who has maybe written a couple of books and they know that the books are quality. Maybe they've even gotten a literary agent and gone that route, but just not seen the success. What's the mindset shift for you that says like, I'm going to take all of this into my control and make it happen. Yeah, so, so there certainly are. Um, I just got off the, the phone a couple of hours ago. I was talking to um, um, some people I'm working with, and I was telling them that there's really are kind of um, different groups of authors, right? So there's some authors, I mean, it really runs the gamut. And there's some people who are just doing it as a hobby. There are some people who are doing it to make money. There are some people who are doing it for a living. There are some people who would like to do it for a living, but haven't gotten to that stage yet. And, you know, we've kind of gone the whole gamut. I mean, when Michael first started out, I mean, we were making like enough money to go out to dinner every month. (laughs) It was like the red lobster. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I think we're doing sandwiches at that point. It wasn't, it wasn't that great. Um, But, but, but things did grow and things evolved and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's definitely not a one size fits all. And I think it's an evolutionary process. Like I think there's nothing wrong with starting out, you know, doing eBooks and maybe being in KU and getting some books out there and kind of working on it. But when you start seeing a lot of traction, um, then, then it's time to think about, you know, um, it's, it's time to think about how to monetize that in some real way. Um, and I, I just do want to rewind just a little bit because, because yes, we have done the whole gamut to be, 100% precise. We started with a very small press that made us absolutely no money. Um, then we did some self-publishing. Then we were picked up by Orbit. Then we went over to Del Rey. And now we're 100% self-publishing and we'll be self-publishing the rest of our lives. I mean, I can't, I can't think of anything that would cause me to go back to traditional publishing. But, you know, all those routes were right for us at the time we were doing it, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's, it's not like, it's, you know, we just tend to be the types of people who are, will evolve and, you know, see where we can go to the next step. We were on VHS, we were on eight tracks, we moved the cassettes, <laughs> then we moved on the DVDs because that's what we needed at the time. Yeah. 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 So, you know, not, I, I call what we do self-publishing 2.0. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is um, there are a couple of things that, there's a lot of things that bother me about traditional publishing. There's a couple of things that bother me about self-publishing. And one of the things that b- bothers me about self-publishing is this very huge reliance on Amazon. 
Um, there have been some authors, and I don't know whether it, it was done legitimately or illegitimately, but they were kicked off Amazon. I mean, they can never sell on Amazon again. Uh, for most self-published authors, that, that just puts the death nail in the coffin. I mean, you're, you're, you're gone, you're dead. You know, because we have developed um, a channel outside of traditional bookstore, you know, independent of Barnes and Nobles, independent of Amazon, you know, a direct one-on-one relationship with our customers, those companies could go the way the dinosaur and we would still make a good living because we have what I think is the most important thing for uh, anyone doing business, particularly authors is, you know, you need to have the email addresses of the people who are reading your books. Yeah. You know, when Brandon Sanderson did his Kickstarter and everyone went, oh my God, you know, wasn't this amazing that he made, you know, I forget what it was, $60 million or whatever right. it was. To me, that wasn't the amazing thing. To me, the amazing thing was he now had, I forget mm-hmm. how many tens of thousands of email addresses. Yeah. Such that whenever he does a new release, all he has to do is email those people and say, I have a new release. And, you know, he's, you know, he's got several million dollars worth of income. Right. So I personally like removing the middlemen and having as, as close of direct relationship to the readers as possible. And there's a couple advantages of that. Number one, you know, without the middlemen, we charge the same amount for the books, whether you buy them directly from us or whether you buy them in the store. Mm-hmm. But the amount of money of the of the readers that stays in our pocket is significantly more when they buy directly from us. Right. So and they, and they want that. Right. I mean, they want to give the money to the people who are giving them the stories that they love. And and it also fosters a much more um, intimate relationship with the readers. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we know them by name. We, you know. They, they give us presents. This, this thing behind us is a, is a present that they gave us, you know? And so yeah. we're just, we're just, we foster a much more um, intimate relationship with the readers. You know, we just yeah. try to, we try to be there for them and they're there for us and, and it all works out good. And I think, again, going back to the self-publishing, particularly if you're talking about like KU and obviously that's where almost all self-publishing authors start off, right? They, they yep. go into KU because there's a small barrier to entry. But I don't think the KU readers have that sense of loyalty that Michael's readers do. Okay? Right. Not at all. Uh, and in fact, you know, the person I was talking about, you know, who was kicked off of, uh, of Amazon, they have since gone over to Kickstarters, which is fine. And they, they do well there and so mm-hmm. forth. But, you know, there's, there's just a huge wall between them. And, and because the KU people have so many other options, if if you are writing what I'm going to call, and I don't want to, I don't want to be negative. It's not mediocre, but if, if you just, if you just write an okay book, right. Mm-hmm. That people read and they get done with, and they say, you know, that was worth my time. You're going to have one kind of readers. Yeah. But what I think writers should strive for is the people that when they get done with a book, they go, wow, that yeah. was great. I got to tell Tom about this. And I got to tell Sue about this. And I'm going to, go to my library and make sure my library is carrying it. And I'm going to buy copies at, at Christmas and I'm going to give them away to people. I mean, that's what we have. We yeah. have those types of fans. So, and I think part of that is that personal relationship. I think part of it is the fact that Mike writes darn good stories. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, I've, I've so far read uh, the first four books of the Raira Revelations. So I, I was trying to get through all six of that first series. It's just yeah, too much. And it was from, <laughs> from the point when yeah, I reached out yeah, to you. Yeah, hold to, on, hold on. When you say the first four books. Could you yeah, so the two, the two the omnibuses. So I've got, yeah. 
Oh, so you read the two physical bind-ups of Revelations? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yep. I, so, I just didn't know if you started with... The, the, some people start with Chronicles, so I didn't right. know if you were going yeah. that direction. Yeah. I did yeah, a ton and, and of studying to try to figure out what was supposed to come first, and I think, Michael, at one point you said, read it in the order I wrote, wrote it. You know, so. yeah, publication order is definitely the way to go. Yeah. yeah, and boy, the best is yet to come because that the ending of the Rayer Revelations is pretty killer. I yeah, I, I love it. I've got some stuff to talk about with that coming up a little bit later. One of the things that I want to ask you, and and this is as much for me as everybody listening, is that there is this kind of unique situation that fantasy and sci-fi authors have in that those genres largely intermingle. So if you read fantasy, you're willing to read high fantasy, you're willing to read urban fantasy, you're willing to read anything in between and give it a chance. I think Sometimes when you branch out, uh, for example, my first novel is a crime novel. I'm not going to be selling that necessarily to my literary friends from my MFA. So how much of what you're saying about that the word of mouth type of thing is targeting the right reader? And do you think that, that, that sci-fi is particular, excuse me, fantasy is particularly good for this uh, Kickstarter kind of method? Or do you think any genre would work? Uh, boy, there's a lot I can say on this. <laughs> Please go for <laughs> it. My, my mind is like going. <laughs> so, so a couple of things. The first thing I want to talk about is, so I have um, some history in marketing. We used to run a marketing company. Yep. And traditional marketing, you were saying a lot of the words of traditional marketing, which I'm going to kind of throw on its ear in a moment, because you're kind of talking about like, you Great. know, like what type of people, you know, are attracted mm-hmm. to the books and, you know, will there be crossover and demographics and stuff like that? Yeah. And there is this, this great guy, his name is Simon Sinek and he did a Ted talk. Um, it's a terrible, it's a terrible title for a Ted talk, but it, it's like how leaders inspire or something like that. If you, okay. if you go to the Ted talk and Simon Sinek, you'll find it. He also wrote a book called start with why, uh, which I've never read, but probably should because this is the subject much more better than the other title. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and what Simon, and we kind of did this without even listening to Simon Sinek and kind of fell into it by accident. But what Simon Sinek says, you know, there's what you, if you talk about marketing, right? There's what you make, there's how you make it, and there's why you make it. And of those three things, most marketing concentrates on the what. I write fantasy. You are a 35-year-old man who plays video games. You are probably a good demographic for me for my fantasy. And that's how people market. And Simon says, next says, that's terrible. You should, not, you should not do that. In other what you should do is start with your why, okay? When Michael started writing fantasy, he could not find the type of fantasy he wanted to read, okay? Hmm. He's, he's much more of an old-school fantasy guy, right? Yeah. Like, you know, good triumphs over evil, and it should be fun. It should be adventurous and, you know, a little bit swashbuckly and a little bit humorous. And he, he just couldn't find anything like that out there, um, particularly, you know, because like a lot of the fantasy went to grimdark and, you know, that kind, kind of tended to be the trend and so forth. So he was writing the types of books that he wanted to read. And he wasn't particularly interested in like, hmm, is there a market for this? You know, like if I write this kind of book, is there a market and, and will people read it? He was just writing what he wanted to write. And he was starting with his why. His why was, I can't find any books I want, so I'm going to do it myself. And if you start with the why, what ends up happening is you attract people to what you're doing in a way that is not really selling, right? It's, it, yeah, it, it's, 
it's a connection with, with them. That you, and one of the examples he uses um, is like how iPhone, you know, how, how, how um, Steve Jobs got, you know, Mac the way it was. And because they were all about, you know, sexy design and, you know, and, and, you know, they didn't really, it wasn't really that, you know, I'm selling something that puts music on it, but it but it's the whole experience. And it's, yeah. it's it, you know, and, and that attracted a lot of people because they just, you know, they're very brand loyal to Apple or they're very brand loyal to Tesla. Mm-hmm. Because again, that was, you know, that completely changed the world, right? Like when, when Tesla made the electric cars uh, possible, now we see, you know, Ford and, and Cadillac and BMW now doing, you know, electric cars. So, you know, when you, when you start talking about like, you know, is fantasy a good thing, you know, for you to get into? Cause like, you know, you know, that, that kind of says to me, like from a marketing standpoint, should I be doing that? And I'm just saying that you got to kind of turn that on your, on its head and talk about like, like, like what you want to write and like what, why you're writing. Okay. Now, as far as Kickstarter is concerned, there is a lot of Kickstarters that are fantasy based. So I do think that that is a good platform for, um, that type of genre. Uh, if you look at the Kickstarter ecosystem on a whole, publishing was a little tiny backwater. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we knew the director of, of uh, publishing uh, for Kickstarter. And, you know, like if you looked at all the projects on Kickstarter, there were very few number that were in publishing. And the one, and like the highest earning one was like, I don't know, $100,000, you know, like where there's yeah. Pebble Watch that makes $5 million and there's the coolest cooler that makes $30 million. And there's all these other like really cool, like a lot of games, mm-hmm. you know. So publishing was just kind of this really, really quiet little area. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was so quiet that Michael, who certainly makes a good living, but would not necessarily be a, you know, a, um, a name, a, you know, a household name or anything. You know, he had five of the top 10 Kickstarters in, a, in, in respect to funding and backers. Yeah. But, until Brandon Sanderson. but then right. Brandon Sanderson comes along, right? And he just blows everything out of the water. And I'm very, very grateful to Brandon Sanderson because I was out beating the weeds for probably yeah. five years telling people, you really need to do Kickstarters. You really need to do Kickstarters. And they're all like, no, 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 right. I can't. And then suddenly... Brandon comes on the scene. They're like, Oh, maybe I should consider this Kickstarter thing, you know? Yeah. So I'm really grateful that he did that because he did, he's done more for opening people's eyes to that than I could have done in, a, in 10 lifetimes, you know, because I'm just, right. I'm just a little nobody. Right. Even though I've made more than $1.5 million on Kickstarter, um, you know, but I'm really, really grateful that he did that. So, so yes, I do think, that that's a good type of thing. But I also think that mysteries work well. I think um, uh, the, the other thing I want to say about Kickstarter, and, and, and this is also some of the reasons why I brought up Simon Sinek, is Kickstarter is not really so much about the what. It is very much about the who. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, I back hundreds of Kickstarters. And many times I back a Kickstarter and I don't even care if I get the reward. You know, like there's always this, yeah. this question about like, well, you know, will it ever get funded? You know, will it ever exist? I remember right. Gail that I, I backed, she was doing a, she wanted to do a movie and I just liked her. I liked everything about her. I liked her attitude. I liked what she was trying to do. I liked her messaging and I backed her Kickstarter and it turned out she, she couldn't, she couldn't fulfill. She, you know, it went belly up. No one ever got anything. Yeah. But I wasn't upset about that. You know, it was like, I just want to support her. And I think in the realm of Kickstarter, mm-hmm. particularly because Kickstarter has these people called super backers, which are just out there kind of combing for new stuff. Mm. Um, 
you know, I, I think that, there, that, that, that if you have something that, you know, if you seem like a really genuine person who has a really cool idea or a real passion for something, um, and you, you're able to communicate that in Kickstarter much better than you can when you're in a bookstore, right? Because it's just mm-hmm. your book on the shelf, right? In right. Kickstarter, you got the video and all this. And your video doesn't have to be, um, you know, high production values. I mean, if you look at our videos, they're really crappy. I think the first one we started off with was just like all our blooper takes, you know, like Mike was starting yeah. to like do the reading and then like a fire truck went by and then right. you know, halfway through it, and he's like, oh. God, this is terrible. Who wrote, who, who wrote this? You know? <laughs> yeah, so the most the most recent person. one. He he's kind of like uh, I'm. I'm just letting you know about this book. Wait a second, it's already fulfilled. And he's like, well, I guess I'll use this time to talk about Brandon Sanderson. Wait, right. he's already fulfilled. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love the the kind of aesthetic that you've built because it it does show you that it's not necessarily about production value as much as it is about connecting with the people who are interested in what you're doing. Um, right. Just to make a point here. Yeah, yeah, please. It's not like invented. That's literally real. I mean, it's really because that's the situation. She yeah. came to me late on that video production. So I, I mean, that's what I had to do. So that, that wasn't <laughs> it, staged? It, it wasn't like this was staged. This wasn't oh, planned. No, Just, no, really? no, no, no. I was, oh, I was like, our, our Kickstarter is going to end in like an hour. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, like, can you quickly do me a video? And he says, I don't know what you want me to do about it. I said, well, I talk about Sanderson because Sanderson, because <laughs> our Kickstarter was right at the same time as Sanderson, right? Yeah. So it, it was worth like, doing a little you know, little play on things but in yeah. our past kickstarters you know um again the, you know i would say we kind of started off being more professional in the respect that you know we'd see sure. the book and there would be some music and then we would give the story and now i'm just saying that in general when you talk about this why and you talk about you know that it's a, a little bit more about personality than the exact actual book mm-hmm. in some respects i think like uh, um, Bryce O'Connor, who did uh, uh, who runs a company called Wraithmark Creative, he did a uh, Kickstarter for Mother of Learning. And I don't know if you know who Mother of Learning is. Okay. I don't. It's very it's very odd, but it's it's someone who's absolutely killing it. It's someone who does serialized fiction on oh. uh, on uh, Royal Road. Okay. And they just have a very very popular serialized fiction, and he ran a Kickstarter. And the guy doesn't have like his real name. He's, he's actually nobody like 128 or something like he's oh, got wow. like, sort of like, you know, like, okay. and so Bryce did this little thing where he comes on with like this fake mustache. He says, hi, I'm nobody 128. And then there's a little captions like, no, he really isn't. And I'm here to <laughs> tell you about this, but I don't know why this guy is doing this. He's not me. You know, he's not nobody 128. Someone should call the cops, you know? And it was just kind of, this, you know, funny thing. Yeah. And, and then at the end of it, you know, uh, the sirens go off and you see him like running, you know, and it was just, it was just very cutesy. Right. And, um, you know, and again, like I've, I've never read a, a, a I've never read a word of mother of learning. I've heard it's mm-hmm. very good. I wanted to back to the Kickstarter just cause I thought it looked like a you new liked product. it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's stop there real quick, because uh, one of the questions that I have, again, a lot of the questions I'm going to ask you are just from my own experience. Um, I have built a very active following on Twitter, like an absurdly active following. I have fewer than 20,000 followers, but I'll do close to three or 4 million impressions every month. So Mm -hmm. people are engaging with me. Uh, But when I try to move them into another area, like, hey, come see what I'm doing over on Substack or buy my book, part of it's because the algorithm doesn't push me out. But also, Mm -hmm. I think that there's a different kind of relationship you build. And it sounds to me like Kickstarter is almost 
like this community where you know you're going to have skin in the game. Talk to me about the difference there. Cause I, and, and I've, I've done some due diligence. I know that Michael's not tremendously active or maybe you being Michael on Twitter is not tremendously active there. Um, and the website is not like yeah, it's a flashy or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. So what you're doing is putting the most time and energy into the places that are most rewarding to you that allow you to continue doing what you're doing at a higher and higher level. Um, so I know there's not a great question right there, but talk to me about the differences as you see it. So, so again, it, it, let's, let's talk a little bit about kind of the, the evolution of, of Michael's career. Okay. Because yep. there was a time like way back when we only had enough money to go out to Red Lobster. It wasn't Red Lobster. I'm telling you, it was like Applebee's, maybe. Maybe it would be Tuesday, you know. Uh, but back in those days, we were very active on social media. And okay. the social media that we spent the most of the time on was Goodreads. And yes. the reason why we were mostly on Goodreads is it, it just made sense. Like everyone on Goodreads is there for one reason, for yes. reading, right? So we're very, very, very active on Goodreads. And um, we have a very simple yet incredibly hard to do plan for anyone to be successful in publishing. Because we never like doing things easy. <laughs> the, That's good. Yeah, the, me either. The incredibly <laughs> simple thing is write a really good book. Now, I'm going to define what a really good book is. Okay. Because a really good book, in my definition for these purposes, is a book that after someone reads, they enjoy it enough to tell other people for, for it. So people will tell me Twilight is a terrible book. And I'll say, mm-hmm. no, Twilight is a very good book because yes. everyone who got done reading Twilight told 10 other people to read Twilight. Same thing with uh, uh, the Grey series. Yeah, 50, yeah, Shades, 50 of Shades of Grey. Yep. Okay? Uh, you know, neither one of those are literary masterpieces. But I'm telling you, from my cl- classification of a good book, they were a good book. Yeah. I mean, I read Twilight and I'm not anywhere near the demographic for that. But mm-hmm. I was compelled. And every day when I got home from work, I was excited to see what was going on with Bella and, and whatever his name was. And I was pulled in. She sucked yep. me in. She kept me engaged. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. And that's what's hard, right? That's the hard part. I mean, it's not easy to write a book that, that people do that. But that's step number one. Step number two is get it in front of some group of people, a, yeah. a small group of people. And what we did for that was Goodreads. And literally... I used to go out on Goodreads and, you know, like every night I would write a couple of messages to people. At the time I was looking at books that were like similar to Mike's. And so like the mm-hmm. book I chose was Scott Lynch's uh, Gentleman Bastard because there was, it was kind of a, a buddy thing and it had some humor and it was fantasy. And I would look for the people who had highly rated Gentleman's Bastards and I would write to them and I would be very, just very genuine. I'm like, hi, my name is Robin and um, I'm the wife of an author, Michael J. Sullivan, and he just wrote his first book. And because you like Gentleman Bastards, I think you would really like this. I would like to send you um, a, a free short story that would give you a feel for his writing. And if, and if you're interested, you know, you know, look at the book. Yeah. And I would just send out like 30 of those every day, like, like total, like uh, sweat ac- equity, right? Like yeah. normally just send out. And I think I did 30 because I think that's all that Goodreads allowed me to do. It allowed me to do yep. 30. 30 things to people I didn't know. And so in the very early days, I mean, literally every time I saw a review for one of my books, I knew that I had, you know, I'm like, Oh yeah, Jody. I, I, I remember that person. I remember, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I physically had talked to those people, Yeah. but because number one was there, which was, it was a really good book. Then it starts turning on its own and it starts, we start seeing other people, right. Yes. And seeing them doing things. 
And then um, the third step in this very simple plan is rinse and repeat, right? Yeah. You got to keep producing content, right? You can't just like put out a book and, and wait 15 years like Patrick Rothfuss. I mean, Patrick Rothfuss was ever do that because he had a really, really, really good book, right? So yeah. he can have that huge span beyond. But the average person, you got to give them a book every six months, you know, every year. We are not one of these rapid writers who are putting out, you know, four books a year, six books a year, 12 books a year. You know, we put yeah. out one book a year. That's like all we That's do. one of the most important reasons that I, I wanted you on the show so bad is I, I think it was Michael that said at one point that he's doing one book a year and that you can focus on quality. And I thought for me as an author, that's the model I want. I, I could see myself if I was really inspired doing two. I really like yeah. the, the publication speed of Stephen King. Um, I wonder if he could write faster if he wasn't traditional, but regardless, um, he's got really good speed and it's a little comment about Stephen King. Uh, No one knows. He knows the speed at which he writes. He literally writes and puts them on a shelf. And whenever he comes by, they publish him at once a year. It's not the rate at which he writes. So I, 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 sus- I suspected that because I, and I'm dang it if I could remember which novel it is where he talks about, he's got all of these manuscripts prepared and he's running out of manuscripts and he's getting tortured or, oh my gosh, it's been too long since I read that book by him, but he has a character that's a novelist who's run out of ideas or something like that, or is running out of books to publish. And I thought yeah, that's gotta be him. About writers. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so anyways, that was just to explain that in the very early days, we were very active. Okay. By this stage of the game, Michael, and because we have such, um, such good word of mouth and because we have, uh, this intimate relationship with our fans, we're not out there. I mean, we're not on Twitter. We're not on Facebook. I mean, like Fairlane came out. We got off Facebook before it was fashionable to do so. (laughs) You know, like, like, like the books for Fairlane arrived, I think, two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, I haven't even tweeted that we now have books of Fairlane. Like, like yeah. how bad a marketing is that? Right. <laughs> but it's because I've been the returns not there. 2,500 copies of books, you know, because of the Kickstarter. Yeah. yeah. So, so for us, um, it's funny because we don't like market anymore. There was a mm-hmm. time when we did market, but then you get to a certain spot where kind of like, the wheel is kind of turning on its own. Yeah. And really the only thing that we need to do at this point is to continue to release. Now, if we were traditionally published, okay, I don't think that would be enough because in the traditionally publishing space, number one, the the books are spaced out very far. And number two, uh, you're getting such a small percentage of the book. You can't live on that small percentage. It's really, really interesting because for, the Raira Chronicles, which is the series um, that comes after the one you're reading, yep. that actually is back in time. The first two books of that series are published by Orbit, and books mm-hmm. three and four of that are published by us. And uh, and you know the way that things work in fantasy, right? You're going to have a, some number of people read book number one, and some people are going to fall off because it's not their cup of tea. Fine. Right. So they're going to have a smaller number for book number two, and you're going to have a smaller number for book number three. And you know, the further you get through the series, the, the lower the number is going to be. That's, that's just natural. But we have made more than twice as much money on books three and four, which came out years after one and two. Mm. The one and two have been on the market longer. They have a bigger audience, but we've made more. It's like 250% income. Wow. You know, on books three and four that were self-published than we did for one and two. And, And we, and one and two were like, 
I mean, from a traditional publishing standpoint, they were very successful. I mean, they were mm-hmm. six-figure contracts. They earned out very quickly their six-figure contracts. They still give us royalties to this day, even though they're eight years old. You know, I mean, by any standards, those are very successful books. And yet the self-publishing has done so much more, you know, has brought in so much more money for us. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's undeniable that that's the the route to go. I'm, there's part of me that wants to go into some of the logistics about uh, talking about the fulfillment because you you talk about the annex and uh, how many books you must have inside of the annex right now baffles my mind. I can't I can't even think about how many you have. Uh, you're talking about you know literal tons in the basement. Oh yeah, there are tons um, of books. And and so you're you're doing the fulfillment yourself. And for I think for a lot that of wasn't authors, always the case. right? That wasn't that's always right. The case. Yes. And that's a good point for other, for other people who haven't listened to other podcasts with you, you, you used a fulfillment company for quite a while. Um, So I guess one of the things though, that I'm thinking about is, yeah, I guess I do want to talk logistics. Do you, do you sacrifice the ability to make a bestseller list because of the way that you're doing? Is that, is that a sacrifice or can you still make it? Yeah. Interesting. Because uh, so like when, when Michael first started, like, making some money, you know, some, some, some real traditional money, because it's really mm-hmm. hard to get on a list when you're self-published. Right. But, yes. but when we start making, you know, really good traditional money, it's like, well, you know, will we ever make the best sellers list? Uh, I don't know. And we kind of calculated out it was like, well, if we were going to make it, our best chance would be book three of the legends of the first empire, because mm. It's just, it was uh, the first book that Michael had in hardcover. Um, that's one of the reasons why we left Orbit because they refused to do hardcovers right. and we wanted hardcovers. And we thought, you know, like if we, you know, like the first book's not going to do it because, you know, it's the first book of a series and people aren't going to think, but if they like it enough, you know, probably by the time we get the third book, that's when we'll hit the New York Times bestsellers. And that was the book that we hit the New York Times bestsellers with. Yeah. Now, since then, we also hit it with Age of Legend, which was a self Oh, Okay. And we hit it with uh, Nolan, which was a self-published book. So wow, okay. we hit the New York Times bestsellers three times, uh, once with um, once with a traditionally published book and, and twice with a self-published book. Um, now, that being said, um, it's, it's really interesting because I, I'm, I'm working with an author, and I, and I don't know whether I should say his name or, or not, but he hits number one in the Amazon store all the time. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. boom, hits it, hits it, hits it. Yeah. And, and I kind of tell him, you know, like, you know, you bit that he does not do his eBooks for Kickstarter. He does not allow his, his eBooks and Kickstarters. He only does his hardcovers and Kickstarters. Oh, great. Okay. Okay. Not great, but and, I mean, that's a good distinction. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons why is because he, he really likes hitting that number one on Amazon. And in some respects, I'm like, yeah, but you're hitting number one, but you're getting this much money for it. If you mm-hmm. were to kickstart that stuff where you're getting all the money, right? Yeah you would get this much money. Is it like, but I wouldn't hit number one, but I'm like, you only have to hit number one once. Right. Right. Like, like as long as you can put on every book that came in from the number one Amazon bestseller. Exactly. Or, or like Michael, you know, Michael's hit the New York times three times. I don't care. I want right. one. That's all I need. I need yeah. one. The yeah. fact that he's hit, hit it two other times. Great. Fine. Wonderful. Love it. Um, but yes, in general, we are not about trying to hit the bestsellers list because mm-hmm. we've done it. I mean, we hit USA Today, we hit New York's Time, and we hit Washington Post. So, right. So, yes, is my way of doing things um, jeopardizing that? Yes, 
with it is it just you know because we are bleeding off sales mm-hmm. before everyone else i mean part of part of the, part of what we do through kickstarters is and it's, and it's very it's very strategically um done is we are trying to get the books in people's hands before yeah. anyone else can to get it in and by definition that's going to screw everything up because to hit the new york times you got to have a really high first week offering yes. so if you just bled off 2000 sales off of your pre-orders right right you're 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 jeopardizing cuz cuz in many cases you only need like 4000 sales Right. You know, to hit, you know, it depends on the week. You're, you're also not playing the book bug game, though, where, no, where you're giving God. a bunch of books away to get your reviews. That was another thing that you talked about is that yeah. you're you're actually selling those 2000 books and those 2000 people because they love you so much are leaving reviews. So even though you might not hit that list with that, that big pregnant 5000 book sales in week one, you already have 2000 reviews like hitting the ground running. That's mind blowing. <laughs> And that's the thing, right? And, and that's actually part of it because here, here's here's my thought process. So one of the perks people get when they back our Kickstarter is they get to read the book three to four months before it's in the retail chain. And in doing that, what that means is we've got people writing reviews on Goodreads before the release date, right? Yes. And when the release date hits, you know, you know, I, I gently ask people, you know, if you happen to have written a review, you know, you, now, it over. You, yeah. know, you can now copy and paste it over to Amazon and that mm-hmm. would be greatly appreciated. So, you know, on day one, we have a, a large number of, of Goodreads reviews and a large number of Amazon reviews because the people have already read it months ago. And, but when, but, you know, always when it comes, you know, when I talk to people about marketing, like, like traditionally marketing, like I'm going to spend money on ads marketing, mm-hmm. right? I tell them, don't do it unless you have a good number of reviews, right? Because right. if you don't have a good number of reviews, you're just throwing your money away because you get someone interested, they go out there, they see there's three reviews and they're like, uh, I'm not going to be, right. big, you know? Yep. But when our on sale date has, you know, 200 reviews, you know, that that's really good. And it also, again, back to this whole fostering of this intimate relationship and stuff, there's all these people running around who feel special because they're able, they've already read the next Michael J. Sullivan book yeah, you know, the world can't only right. they can, right? You know? And and I think that there's something really cool about you know being one of the cool kids. I, I yes. get this before anyone else, and that's something that Kickstarter allows me to do in a way that I can't do it anywhere else. Yeah. Now, long ago, uh, we had uh, when we were published through Del Rey. There's some non-compete clauses, and God, don't even get me started on non-compete clauses. <laughs> yeah. Go off the rails. But there, there was a book called The Disappearance of Winter's Daughters. It's the fourth book in the Rye Chronicles. And we were negotiating the contract and we're trying to figure this, this thing out. And the bottom line was during the time that Del Rey was releasing books, I couldn't release any Royce and Hadrian books. Okay. Right. And, and I was not planning on that because, you know, I wanted to have, I, I generally wanted to have both, both timelines moving forward. Mm-hmm. So I did something kind of interesting. The first thing I did is I told Mike, I says, you got to write me a book in. She 20- says interesting. I say sadistic. Yeah. <laughs> so the death of dual gath, which is the third book of that series. Mm-hmm. I had to get that on. I had to get that on sale before December 31st, because that was in my contract. If I could get that book in, in the year, in that year, it would not count in the non-compete clause. So I told Mike that he had like 68 days, like 68 days to write a wow. book. And wow. he did. Okay. Yeah. 
And but then for disappearance winner's daughter, this is really interesting. It also couldn't be put on sale for when I wanted to be. So for oh. over a year, maybe a year and a half, I forget now. The only place you could get disappearance of winter's daughter is buying directly from our website. That was the oh. only place you could get it. And that allowed me to say that it wasn't published because it mm. wasn't on Amazon. It wasn't on Barnes and Noble. You couldn't get anywhere else. Right. Now I would have thought that, I, well, I just bled this puppy dry, right? Like for a year yeah. and a half, people have been reading this. So when it comes out on Amazon, you know, when the release date finally comes out, mm. it's, it's just going to like lie there like a, a turd, yeah. right? But then I sold way more on Amazon yeah. than like I did myself. I mean, like what I did myself in comparison looked like, you know, it looked minuscule. Yeah. So it's not like I can say, well, I, I don't like Amazon and I, you know, I'm going to take my books off Amazon. I mean, they, it brings me a lot of income. But what I'm saying is, is even though, even though we do sell a lot direct, that Amazon money still is significant. Yeah. Well, so that, that does answer one of the just logistical questions I had, because you do talk a lot about the Kickstarter and selling direct, but you still are selling some through Amazon. Are you selling some through Barnes and Noble and other avenues as well? Okay. Yeah. So people can find your book anywhere. It's just that you're putting the, the, the lion's share of your energy into selling direct because that's where all of the, the money is. Right. And, and, and as far as like being able people, you know, like our books are in Barnes and Noble, they are on the bookshelves. Now that is not an easy, that is not an easy task to do as a self-published author. Yeah. 99.99% of self-published authors can't do that. And let me explain why. Shelf space is at a huge premium in, in right. right? And print on it'll never happen with print on demand because print on demand requires someone to pay for it before it hits the shelf and the mm-hmm. unit price on it is too high and it just it doesn't work. So in order for that to happen at all, you have to do a print run. Mm-hmm. You have to have a warehouse. You have to have a distribution partner. And more importantly than anything mm-hmm. is you have to be able to move books through the bookstores. Now, because Mike was traditional for a while, his the algorithms at Barnes and Nobles and Amazon as a traditionally published author knows he sells. And therefore, when we self-published a book, they don't care that it's self-published. They don't know that it's self-published. They just know it's a Michael J. Sullivan book. So they are, they have some automatic buying where they're doing pre-ordering and so forth. And so that's keeping it in the stores. But if we didn't do the print run and we, if we didn't have the distribution partner, there would be nowhere for them to go to buy those books, right? Because they're not going to come to us to buy them right. because that's not the way it works. I mean, they're only buying from, you know, these big, you know, these big, you know, these big, um, wholesale companies. Yep. So, so yeah, we can do that. And it's, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting experiment because I do think that self-published authors that have a huge following, like I was talking about mother of learning who you haven't heard about, but like, trust me, a lot of people do know, you know, who that is Yeah. Um, or some other self-published authors. I do think that self-published authors can get the algorithms to get them into bookstores. And I'm doing yeah. an experiment right now with that, with this other author I was talking about who hits number one on the Amazon store all the time. Like we are now going to be distributing through our distribution network, his books. We've done a print run for him. We're going wow. to put it into our, we're going to put it into the distribution system, just like Michael's books are. Now he doesn't have some initial algorithms to go. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see how it goes, but I think he has a loyal enough fan base that once they start seeing it in the stores, they're likely to pick it up 
mm-hmm. because they've already heard about the book, right? Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see that if we can get a self-published author who does not have that traditional seed corn planted mm-hmm. to get the algorithms going, whether we can get them, you know, to, to get money that way. Now, yeah. even if it fails miserably, it'll still be a huge success because if nothing else, all his Amazon books are now going to be offset printed as opposed to POD printed. And the mm-hmm. difference in income to him and that is will huge. be significant. Because, yeah. Because if, if his books are normally making him like a buck 10 when they're POD, they're now making him like, well, on the hardcovers, they're making him like $20, wow. not $20, uh, $10. And on the paperbacks, like $8. So, yeah. You know, for, you know, he, he already sells a ton of, you like, I, when I heard how many books he sold POD, I said, you sold how many books POD? <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, and I'm calculating out, like, you know, that's a loss of like $60,000. Like if, you, right. if those had been a print run, you know, yeah. you just, you just put money on the, t- you just took money I off am, the table. I'm you know? so, so happy to have you on the show saying the things that you're saying right now. And so everybody who's listening, I want, I want you to rewind it a little bit and hear Robin talking about money on the table, because I think one of the biggest mindset things that I work on with my audience, and I'm talking about it every opportunity is value yourself more. Yes. And there's, a, there's a couple Absolutely. areas that this really, really plagues us because yeah. I think that there, there are writers who believe books don't sell. And so they write a book that they're passionate about, that they love, that they want readers to read, but they're already thinking nobody sells books. So I can't afford an editor. I can't afford somebody to design my cover. I can't afford... Yeah, say it again. You can't afford not to, but you're talking about earning money as a living, being an author, because you're doing everything right up to the moment that the book starts to distribute. And there's just not enough authors that really are confronting the reality. Go ahead and spend a couple grand. In fact, I will never, I will never do any kind of mastermind for authors to try to teach them how to do what, what we're doing, no matter how far along I get. I'll give all of that away for free, but I will tell people, Go into debt on a credit card to get a good editor if you have to, because if you believe in you, what you you're doing, I, you know what I did go to ahead. for Mike's first editor, this <laughs> blow your mind to, to get money for Mike's first editor. I did a medical trial. I was taking an experimental drug for, for uh, hemophiliacs because I was an O negative oh. um, blood, blood person. Yeah. And, and that earned me like $800 and that get me the $800 that paid for my, I don't, yeah. if, if, uh, you know, if back in the day I would take an extra job walking dogs, if that's what it took for me to get an editor or, you know, going to one of these companies where you've got pass out flyers, you know, spend a couple Saturdays and Sundays passing out flyers, but get that, get that money anyway. Cut but out I, beer for her. But I know. will drop her in a heartbeat if she doesn't perform for me. I know. <laughs> um, but speaking of what you were saying a second ago, and I feel weird because I'm not looking at the camera properly. Um, <laughs> when I was in art, I used to start off as an illustrator. And one of the things they taught you was that when you do a piece of art, you have to mount it well. You have to put a nice matting on it. And the reason is the concept was if you don't present your artwork as if it is the best that it can be, then no one else will. So you have to present it in a light that this is worth your money and it is worth paying a good deal of money for my artwork. 
And I'm going to present it to you in the best possible light, because if you don't do that, no one else is going to believe it either. And the fact of the matter is, if you do a really good piece of art and you present it and you sell it at a price that it's worth, people respect that and they will actually give you more time. It's a weird thing that when um, Harry Potter, the last few books came out, I read, I think it was the seventh book of Harry Potter, and it had like seven mistakes in it. Wow. And we had someone read my books and they came back and used your books being self-published are littered with errors. Mm. So we asked them, could you name them? Cause I can change those and I can put them on ebook. And they came back and they found three. And it turned out that none of them were actually errors. I think, I think one of them was an error and the other two were, 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 were grammatical. Yeah. They, were they, didn't, they didn't understand the rules. of. But grammar. when you have the idea that you're a self-published author, they assume mistakes. They assume lower mm-hmm. quality. Yeah. Don't let them assume that. Tell them this is the best thing that they've ever read in their whole lives. And Mm. you present it to them that way and you charge them as if it is. And if you do that, people will not come to that conclusion that, oh, this is just crap. I'm just going to read it as crap. You tell them, no, this is great. I put well, she priced my books at a comparative rate to people who were doing traditionally published when I was self-publishing. And that came across. So, yes, you have to value your own artwork. If you don't, no one else will. Yeah. Well, and for us, I mean, like, obviously, you know, we're very financially solvent. So my, my self-published books are better edited than my traditionally published books because I, because the publisher isn't willing to pay for two editors to go through them. Right. I, I pay for two editors. Yeah. And the reason why Beautiful. I pay for two editors is there's no single editor on the face of the planet that can get every single error. Yeah. And even with two editors, you're not going to get every single error, but I have two editors that you know, have complementary skill sets and one's good at one thing and one's good at another thing. And so I spend twice the editing budget, Mm -hmm. twice the amount of time sending it through two different people because I, because my, my publisher won't do that because I'm the publisher. I can make sure the book is high quality. If that means I send it through two publishers, that means it says two publishers. If it means I spend thousands of dollars on the cover art, because I want to use Mark Seminetti, who is a, just an amazing artist who's done books for Patrick Rothfuss and George R. R. Martin and, you know, all the, and, and, uh, the fellowship of the rings. I mean, that is, you know, personally, when I'm telling a, a self-published author, I'm, I would never tell them to spend on a cover what I spend on a cover, right? Yeah. Because I have the money where I can do it. The, the amount of good covers that can be made for reasonable amounts these days is just incredible. And in fact, right. I think the self, I think the, I think the professional self-published authors covers look way better than anything coming out of traditional publishing. Yeah. I mean, our orbit covers suck. <laughs> they are yeah. horrific. Well, and they, they do, they do things like they, they think they're speaking to a genre. And so they're going to do this, this specific aesthetic and, and you're thinking, no, you can elevate it so much more. Uh, there's Emily Henry right now in kind of like soft romance. And she has this sort of cartoony graphic on the cover of all of her books it is shocking how quickly every romance novelist switched over to that cover art when she oh, started. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's it's insane. My wife loves uh, romance, so I'm I'm pretty well versed in it. But yeah, it's it's crazy. And when you see that happening in traditional publishing, it kind of makes you angry because you do realize in some ways they're homogenizing your experience. They're forcing you to have one kind of experience. Well, yeah, and the thing is, they don't care about your book like you care about your book. Yeah. Right. Like when we saw the covers of when we saw the covers that Orbit did, and we we hated them for many many reasons, not the least of which they had things wrong about the characters. Um, you know, we we had no say over it. Like mm-hmm. you know, like 
tough cookies, yeah. you know, if, like if, if you saw the original covers that I did for my original books, what I wanted was something more of a throwback to the landscapes that we used to see with Lord of the Rings. They yeah. didn't have characters on the cover. And when I presented that to Orbit, they were not receptive. They said, this mm. is a character-driven book, so we want to have people's faces on the cover. And I'm like, I don't want people's faces on the cover because I want the readers to be able to envision my characters as they see fit. Yep. So when we went to Del Rey, I was shocked to discover that there's a publisher who actually listens they to listen what to I us. say. Yeah, they oh, nice. And when I told Del Rey them, was very good with us. When I told them I want Mark Simonetti doing the artwork. They're like, absolutely. And I want, wow. you know, and, I, and when Mike said, I want this, this is the scene of the book yes. I want on the cover. They said, okay. And I want the characters small, generally their backs facing you. So you're not seeing their faces. Mm-hmm. They went along with that. Yeah. And That's surprisingly great. enough, you, you might be shocked. I know you're probably shocked to discover that people actually judge a book by the cover. <laughs> and crazy. when people saw <laughs> Age of Myth with that old big tree on the cover and tiny characters, they picked it up yeah. because of the cover. Yeah. And it yeah. was flying in the face of everything that publishing was dictating at that time. Yeah. yeah. But that's what happens when you're self-publishing and you can do these kind of things. Yeah. Well, and you yeah. talked about, too, how you wanted to write. And you were talking about it at the beginning, too, Robin, as far as like writing a certain kind of uh, book where you had a character who had, you know, kind of like, I guess, a moral aesthetic or something like that. And people that you could root for and maybe they weren't mm-hmm. like the anti-hero. You wanted to write real heroes and real friendships. Um, and people were like, no, no, nobody wants that. And you kind of flew in the face of that as well. Well, and it wasn't and it wasn't like it wasn't like anyone said, no, you can't do that. Or no, you shouldn't do that. Uh, it's just Mike would never, uh, that's, he wouldn't right. spend his time doing that. I mean, like, like he has no interest in that, you know, yeah. uh, you know, he, he's had, you know, various uh, properties come to him and say, you know, we write a book in our property. And he's like, no, I have no interest in doing that. You know, it's just not my cup of tea so he's only going to write the types of things that he wants to write like my and, if they, are burning. and if they sell great <laughs> and if they don't sell that's okay we're we'll be all right the, the yeah. point was and she touched on this earlier but i didn't jump in because i didn't want to interrupt her stream of thought but the fact is is that when i started writing i started writing because of the fact that i didn't like what was being published period yeah. much less in fantasy yeah mm-hmm. and so i tried to do something different and that was my goal I wanted to make writing be easy to read. I didn't want it to be this wall of archaic kind of, Mm. you know, weird language that people were writing uh, in a Dickensian form. I wanted it to be common American English that you can read because of the fact that I discovered if you read Hemingway, it's not the greatest prose in the world. It's very simplistic, but it is very emotional, impactive when you don't have to decipher the language of the sentences. So I wanted to make it easy to read. I also wanted humor in a book. I wanted it to be funny at times because real life has jokes, even in the worst situations. It's funny sometimes. People will crack a joke at a funeral and it's the most funny moment in the world. These are the things I wanted to bring to fantasy that didn't exist. This was my goal. I wanted to change what was out there because I couldn't find a book that I liked. It was that attitude that drove me to do something that I thought, thought was different. And if you do that as a writer, if you find something that is lacking in your genre or in literature in general, and you create that, you're going to create a following of like-minded people, which is the Simon Sinek thing she's talking about. That was my goal. I actually find it strange when people read my books and they say to themselves, you know what? This is very derivative. This is like everything else in old school. But I'm like, have you no idea how I've changed this entire genre by being very common in my language, using humor and using, you know, very strong emotions with the characters. This is not normal. 
it, and the other yeah. thing, you know, a traditional publishing, you know, besides homogenizing your book and, and besides not paying you any money and so forth, you know, they, they get in these, these certain ruts. I mean, there was a time, you know, it was probably 10 years ago, you know, uh, when if you wrote an urban fantasy, forget it. Like, don't even bother submitting it because publishing mm. had decided that urban fantasy was just was not done. something they wanted. Yeah. Or, or, a, or a vampire romance you yep. know, book. Don't bother submitting it. It won't get picked up. We have no interest in that. And yet there were some people. And if you look at Lit RPG, right? Mm-hmm. Lit RPG kills it in self-publishing. Absolutely slaughters it. Do you see anyone in traditional publishing, you know, doing lit RPG? I mean, you could make an argument that Ready Player One is kind of it, but like, yeah. you see a whole bunch of you see a whole bunch of like Ready Player One, you know, things going. On. It just doesn't right. happen, you know. And and that just goes to show you that you know that their bean counters have decided that's not like something that's like for whatever reason they determine it's not worth looking into, and so you know they're a slow ship to turn. You know, they'll yeah. they'll they'll. Be doing lit RPG just as someone as soon as the self-published authors have all moved on to something other that you know really cool thing, whether it be serialized fiction or something else, you know. So, yeah. Um, so I want to I want to take a little bit of a shift back into a mindset concept, and it's something that personally fascinated me. It's probably my favorite moment from the first of the four books that I've read. But um, Arista's kind of first learning how to handle magic. And um, she she realizes that she can boil the uh, the captor's blood, and it's yeah. like it, it, the, the language of that scene talks about like how she just gets a feel for what it is. She starts to to do the spell, and I hope I'm not using any wrong terms here, but basically she's kind of feeling her way through it and the rightness of it, and it's kind of this horrific moment, but it's also yeah. like so thrilling to see her kind of figure that out and the the emotional arc that she has in that moment. And for me. On my own marketing journey, most of what I learn kind of, uh, no pun intended, I was literally going to say boils down to that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a sense of feel. I've told my, my listeners, I've told my family that m- more often than not, my best ideas happen just because I get an inspiration. And instead of saying why it won't work, I just do it. Sometimes right. I look like an idiot, but sometimes it works out and it's, it's uh, been a trusty kind of sidekick for me. Talk to me a little bit about that with you. Cause I know you, you talked earlier about having um, a marketing background, even before the the publishing that you're doing right now, how much of it for you is feel? I, I imagine most of it at this point, it, but it, it all is feel. Uh, say, yeah. yeah. I mean like, yeah, my, <laughs> my true background is uh, I'm a, I'm a electrical engineer by, by schooling and by, and a software programmer by uh, trade. And then I became president of a software company. And then wow. uh, my husband started up an advertising agency. And so I started working at the advertising agency. So I, I had sent there, but um, everything I do is like trial and error, right? Like it's just, yeah. it's like, you know, trial, error and, and rinse and repeat. The, the, the most. We're, we're, the, really enough, when you think about it, everything the two of us have ever done really has been pretty much trial and error. It is. We have taught ourselves everything, everything. because we started out with the time when, when software was just coming out. Things like Corel Draw and Photoshop were just debuting. So we started learning that. To make by, a- and, and it was I, I was shocked to discover they teach classes in it now. Yeah. Because it's an application. It's like taking a class to learn how to play Halo. Yeah. It's just right. weird. 
right? So we learned everything trial and error. So when I started an advertising agency, I did it because I knew how to use Photoshop and Corel Draw and things of that, that nature. So then I hired Robin because she had a background in electrical engineering and I was basically selling to tech people. Mm. As a result of that, we made things up as we went. And that's how you get on the cutting edge. And if you're on the cutting edge, you're making a difference and you're making a change. People will then go to you because we were the only people who were doing computer-based artwork for advertising. Everyone else was still doing cut and paste on actual boards, you understand. Yeah. So this was just revolutionary. And if you can think in a way that you're in the cutting edge, you're going to be ahead of the curve. You're going to be teaching people what they need to know to want your product. You're not following someone else and being a half-assed good job of (laughs) someone else's better product. You're actually out there presenting the new product that they're going to learn that they need. So, so there's, there's two things I can think of, you know, on this subject. Number one is trial and error. And, and, and I think, I think try something, but recognize what works and what doesn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. If it works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, do less of it. Right. It's pretty simple, but, but a lot of people don't do that. Like, uh, like way back in the day, you know, like, like in 2009 ish, uh, do you ever heard of a guy named, um, J.A. Conrath, you know, definitely. Yeah. I love his blog. Actually. He was kind yeah. of the first person who got yeah, me he was like thinking big, about self-publishing right? like, in a new way. It was like starting off yes. this whole thing. And J.A. Conrath said, every book should be priced at 299. If you're not right. pricing your book at 299, just forget about it. You're like screwing up. And, you know, we, we, we would have philosophical conversations with Joe all the time. We actually went out to dinner with Joe. Uh, actually, we took Joe out to dinner and then he paid the bill. Uh, <laughs> that was because he has a fondness for scotch. Really expensive scotch. Really expensive. Oh, wow. Okay. Really expensive scotch. Yeah. So, so, so I'm, I'm waiting for the bill to come and he gets up to go to the bathroom and he pays for this, it. This is just uh, fun because it, it reminds me of something you would read in a literary, like historical biography. But the fact that we went to New York to this very expensive restaurant with him and uh, Crouch. Yeah. Crouch. Blake Crouch. Blake Crouch. And we're having a meal and they are ordering the most expensive scotch on the menu. Oh, and geez. we and You're we're introducing him to a uh, an, an agent. agent. And, and I'm adding up this bill. And, and like, it's oh just going astronomical. I mean, it was near a thousand dollars. No, it was way over that. <laughs> and <laughs> and he disappeared. Uh, Conrad <laughs> disappeared. And he comes back and a little bit later we're like going, we need to pay for this. No, I already paid for it. And we're like, oh, Damn you. Nice gesture. But anyways, so Joe Conrad said 299, 299, 299, 299. Yeah. We were priced at 599 to 799. Yeah. And, and he's like, You're you're screwing yourself. You're screwing yourself. Yeah. That price is no good for you. No good for you. I said, No, Joe, you're too you're you're pricing yourself too small. Yep. But finally he convinced me. He says, give it a try. So I went to 299. Because trial and error is the way to go. Right. And, and, and I, I sweated through it because not only did I lose money at 299, but I made less sales. Yeah. I made less sales at 299 than I was at 599 and 799 because I got myself in a strato, in, in a stratus where my readers weren't looking. Like my readers were used to looking with my comparable to Brandon Sanderson and, yeah. and, and Patrick Rothfuss and, uh, you know, uh, Scott Lynch. And now we're down here with the, all these mm-hmm. other people and we just look like a me tour. Yeah. And, I, and I, I was like, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I'll give them a certain amount of time and mm-hmm. it didn't work. And so I, then I put my price back up 
And immediately the sales returned. But this speaks to something you were talking about earlier, the idea that if you're on Facebook or if you're on Twitter or if you're on Goodreads, you have a sort of, there's a community you're talking to. Yeah. Simply happens in price point. If you're at a certain price point, you will be communicating to certain people. If you're at a different price point, I almost consider them like thermal planes if you're in a submarine. If you're at a different point, people can hear you. If you're in a higher point, they're not going to hear you because they're not looking mm. in an area. It's perfect. So yes, it's very strange that if you're looking at an audience, there are these little communities that you have to break into. If you're in the Goodreads section, you'll have a large group. If you're in Facebook, it's a different group. If you're in Twitter, it's yeah. a different group. So you kind of have to play all of those and you have to pick which ones you think are the most lucrative for success mm. or what you want to see as success. Yeah. So these are things you have to take in consideration. So, so, so that's one of the trial and error things. The second one I want to bring up, because it is completely instrumental in, in our business model right now, and that is Kickstarter. Yes. Kickst- we did Kickstarter almost on a dare in some respects. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Because we were friends with a traditional published author, and he had just written a trilogy, and his... Uh, agent had shopped it around, shopped it around, shopped it around, finally got an offer and it was a crappy offer. Mm-hmm. And, and at least he had the, the, the wherewithal to say, no, I won't take that crappy offer. I and mean, that, that offer is just too horrific. I, I won't, I won't bend over that hot, that far. And I said, well, why don't you self publish it? Mm-hmm. He said, well, I can't self publish it because I live, I live like advanced to advance. And I don't have the money for the editors. I don't have the money for the cover designers. And, uh, and I won't put out a book that's not well edited and it doesn't have a good cover design. I said, well, you know, I've heard about this thing called Kickstarter. Why don't you run a Kickstarter? You can raise, you're a traditionally published author. You have a following. Yeah. Raise some money, get it edited, you know, do whatever and, and, and put out there. And he says, oh, no, I, I just can't even imagine that working. I'm like, I think it would work. He says, nah, it won't work. Yeah. So I ran my first Kickstarter. Never to rob and it won't work. I ran my first Kickstarter and it was hugely successful. And it opened my eyes to so, I mean, like the scales fell away from my eyes. Why. Because yeah. it was a, a whole new community. Like 70, 70% of the people we got were not existing readers. They were new people. People who had never yeah. heard of Michael before. Okay. Uh, and, and it was just, it was just this very welcoming community and they were very enthusiastic and they liked being a part of bringing something to life. I mean, mm-hmm. that was that was kind of a really cool thing is all these people on the Kickstarter are like intimately involved in this success. They want to, because they were a part of it. They made it happen. And I went, this is like the coolest thing. And now I would never release a book without a Kickstarter. I mean, I just, right. I, I can't imagine ever doing that. And that was one of those things where kind of fell into it. It worked, yeah. so kept going. And the lowering the price thing, you know, like we, we listen to the advice of people who, you know, know their stuff mm-hmm. and we tried it out. But when we found out it didn't work, we readjusted and put it back to where it should be and so forth. So, yeah, you know, I, you know, it, it is a little bit about, you know, feel, but it's also about tracking and then adjusting because like yes. if, if you do something and you're not tracking, whether it's, doing anything for you mm-hmm. why did you bother doing it i mean you have you have to you know did my sales go up when i did this thing whatever it may be whether yep. that be running an ad or whether that be you know like in, in like one of our in one of our cases one of my early like inspirational things uh and you know like back in the day you couldn't get a book free on amazon 
Mm-hmm. Um, because there was no such thing as KU. And there oh, was I know where this is going. This is so, it price matching. Is this the, the price, price matching? Matches, oh right? gosh, I love this. Yeah, this yeah. is so great. So, so I was like, you know, so I heard about this whole thing about price matching. I went, oh, I wonder if this works. But the smartest thing I did was I took Mike's second book of his series and I did the price matching thing. I got it to zero. And because it was the second book of the series and because his first book wasn't all that expensive, I think it was five bucks. Mm-hmm. We had a huge number of people buying book one because they're getting book two for free. And they're yes. like, oh, I can't read book two. And unless I get big one, oh, look, book one's only five bucks. Well, hell. I'll yeah, spend two for bucks. one. Yeah, two for one at this five is, bucks. This is no fun. He knows our stories. Yeah. So, <laughs> sorry. So, so we ran that for a while, and then we turned it off, and 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 it gave us a huge boost, and and and, yeah. and and it was, you know, it was ingenious. But then, you know, but then Amazon comes out with this thing that you can, anyone can put it for free for five days, and now it's just like mm-hmm. free, 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 free. Right. And I think people get, you know, they think they have to give it away. You don't right. have to give it away. There's time if you give it away. Like, like, here's the thing that completely blows my mind. Like, yeah. I do not understand why anyone with a single book out puts that book for free. Right. That makes no, no sense. sense to me, right? Agreed. Wait till you have three books out and then put a book for free or yep. lower the price or whatever and get people into it and, you know, get them in. But, but if all you have is one book, yeah. you got nothing for them to go into. And I don't understand right. people advertising when they only have one book. Spend yeah. your time writing book two. Spend your time writing book three. You get three books out. Then if you want to put a little money into advertising, at least then, because you, you spend so much yeah, you spend so much time getting people to look at it that at least you got three potential sales out of it rather than just one potential sale. So I wanna I wanna talk about this. Um and, and I will add in too, another thing that I've done and have had really good success with so far is my book is my first book. I was an agented author and my agent spent three years and couldn't give me a book deal. Whether that means my book's no good or or you know, and she just has bad taste, I don't know. But um I I I fired her um about a month ago actually and decided I'm gonna do something a little bit different. Um, and I'd had this marketing book because I, I get the mindset. I can't tell you how to sell a book yet, but I can tell you how to not quit. Um, and so I've got that book ready. And you know, I, I thought, I, you know what Joe Conrad says? Uh, not on this one. I probably not. But uh, the, his famous thing was uh, there's a word. There's a word for authors who don't quit. It's published. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I will steal that too now. <laughs> so what what I did though is same kind of idea as you is I thought anybody who wants my book has a certain kind of abundance mindset. And so my ebook is priced at $7.99. It's pre-order. But what I'm doing to get people to accept that price when I feel nervous about it is it's free for me to produce the audiobook. I have all of the equipment I need. I have a studio. This is not it, but you know, the podcast is at a little lower of a quality. So I record the audiobook for my book and then I'll give it to you a month early for free if you purchase the ebook. And so that way you drive people to get an added value, but you don't subtract value from the actual product. You say, here's a bonus. And I think that the way that people think when you do that really helps. Well, yeah, because you're not undervaluing your thing. Yeah. What we what we did, which was somewhat similar, uh, so when Orbit was putting Michael's books for sale, his self-published books had to come off the market. And there was a period of time between when the pre-sale date came in, says there was like a three-month period where you literally could not buy anything by Michael. And I'm like, this, this really sucks. So I says, write me a short story. Write me a little Royce and Hadrian short story that I can put out for, 
And at the time, I think I had to put it out for 99 cents because I didn't think there was a, a free oh, thing. Oh, story. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I at least have something out there. And then yeah. when, when we were starting to market things, that was the thing that was giving away liberally. But here's the thing. I didn't give it away by like posting it on my website so that anyone could download it whenever they wanted to. It was an exchange for an email. Send me your email and I will send you this free short. Because then I started collecting names and I started building my email list. Right? Yeah. Because a lot of people will put something free and they'll just say, you know, like click on this page and you read the story, but you don't have the email. Mm-hmm. Like the email is the most important thing. Going back to that whole thing with Brandon Sanderson. The reason why Amazon has completely destroyed the, self, the publishers is because the publishers don't have any emails of any readers. Right. Amazon has all the emails. They know that this reader has read this author and this author and this author and this author, and I can recommend this book to them and they're going to buy it. Mm-hmm. Why the publishers never saw any value in that is like beyond me. And yeah. the other thing that like completely blew my mind is when Goodreads became available and Amazon bought it, the publishers just gnashed their teeth about, oh, you know, oh, what was us? You know, it's going to be even harder for us because, you know, that was... Why didn't you buy it? <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just the borders money. situation. Exactly. Like, borders like, is like we're, you know, but, not doing ebooks and now you're gone. And they could have had all those emails. They could have had, I don't even know what it is, 20 million emails, yeah. 40 million emails of, of book readers. How much is that worth to you, publishers? It should be worth a lot. But no, you know what they did? They made this thing called Bookish, which nobody has ever heard of. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be like the Goodreads like competition, but nobody's there. It has no value. Cough up the money and buy Goodreads. You know, it, it was like it was like the stupidest thing that publishers ever did. Well, no, they've done a, do. well, they've done a lot of stupid things, but not buying Goodreads is certainly one of them. Absolutely. So I want to, this is a really good moment too, to talk about this, but I want to talk about your idea of having two or three books and Kickstarter on a previous episode or a podcast that you were on, you had talked about. Um, so, so Michael, you said something to the effect of uh, use it as kind of a trial and error, put that book out there on Kickstarter. If it doesn't fund, people aren't interested. And you said, nope. Yeah, Robin, you said not, don't do that. Make sure you have a great book. Make sure you know what you're doing, that you're savvy out there. Let me revisit that and open kind of a new avenue for it. What's the value of trying a Kickstarter and grabbing some of those emails? Do you only get them? Because I've never done one before. You uh, are just a brand new idea for me in many ways, but um, do you still get the emails if you try to do that? So it's only if it funds that you actually get the emails. So you, if you, if you do a Kickstarter and it fails, it doesn't meet its goal. It's as if it doesn't exist. So you have no emails of people. You have no credit cards are charged. Um, now what you can do is you can set, uh, you know, you, you can set a low goal, you know, and, and, you know, and I, and I will say that there have been a lot of, you know, first book Kickstarters that have done well, you know, like I'm not saying it can't be done. And especially, you know, you mentioned, you know, uh, having a really quite large following, you know, people who have a following definitely should try a Kickstarter. Like, like, like the, the analogy I put this into is like, let's say you are um, doing a kickbook, uh, you're doing a cookbook for recipes from uh, church members in like this huge congregation, right? Yes. Like if that's what you're going to do, baby, you kickstart that. Because like <laughs> every Love single it. one of the people who is in that congregation is going to want that, that cookbook, right? 
Yes. That's going to be a success no matter what, right? Because you already have a following in it. I was just about to say, somebody actually is getting rich right now because of what you just said. Some church going person <laughs> who's listening is now rich. So Yay. you're welcome. <laughs> Yay. I like that. More rich people. Um, you know, but, but like, you know, things they have following, like for a long time, and, and he's changed this too, but for a long time, Brandon Sanderson was saying that you should not self-publish unless you have a following. And the example mm-hmm. he always used was Larry Korea. Because Larry Korea uh, had a very large, uh, you know, kind of right wing gun toting following in his non writing stuff. And like he's like, Larry Korea sells a lot of books because he's already got this huge following. And so he can self publish and he can make it. Mike had no following, zero, zilch, none when he started. So I don't think you have to have a following, but certainly if you do have a following, you know, like I was saying with this, this, this author that got us to do the Kickstarter, because, you know, I said, look, you're a traditional published author. You have a following. You should be doing Kickstarter. Every traditional published author should do a, a project, not give it to their publisher and kickstart it. Like, yeah, that's just. Didn't Mark do that? Who? Lawrence. No, he, he's never done a Kickstarter. I thought he has. Oh, he has self-published. Oh, he has, he has some short self-published. stories yeah. that are self-published. But I'm just saying yeah. that. You know, and, and it's and it's not like it's not like I'm going to say, no, absolutely don't do it. I'm saying on average. Right. If you're brand new and you think, oh, Kickstarter is the way to go, you're probably going to struggle. But if you're a very personal person and you have a really cool video or if you have a following and you can bring people in because of that, um, I think there's a chance there. There is a Kickstarter. um you know, uh, so so we've been helping people with Kickstarters recently, and there was a Kickstarter that yep. we ran uh, that did not do nearly as well as I thought it would, based off of what, based off of the types of reviews that this author had, mm-hmm. and based off of, um, and based off of how many books he had sold. I'm like, you know, he should clear like sixty thousand dollars in the first day. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, just based on everything I knew, should do it. He struggled to get like fifteen thousand. Okay, and. And I'm still trying to analyze why that is, but I think a big part of it was uh, his video was kind of dry. Okay. Right? You know, it, yeah. was, it was, it was like kind of dry and I don't think it connected with people personally. Like I was saying, like with, with, with Bryce. Yeah. So the one thing I could say to people who, if you're doing Kickstarters personally, what I would do, like, like back when I used to, uh, back when I was trying to get my tradition published and I was writing query letters, mm-hmm. hell on earth. <laughs> Yeah, right. Um, I I read every single post by Query Shark, every single one, the good ones, the bad ones, because I was trying to learn how to write a really good query letter, and it definitely taught me what to do and what not to do by query. Even though I never got a publishing contract because of a query letter, but anyways, it taught me. But I would tell someone go to every single Kickstarter and watch their videos and see which ones work and which ones don't, and, and you know, like use that to help you kind of churn about what your kicks, you know, what your video should be. Cause I really think the video uh, like right now with Mike following, you know, both in the fact that he has a lot of Kickstarter followers. I mean, he doesn't have to as evidenced by the fact that our last Kickstarter didn't even have a video until it was two hours before close. Um, he doesn't even have to do a video, but if, but if you are going to do Kickstarter, especially if it's going to be your first Kickstarter, then I think your video is going to be very important. And I think it's going to be, and I think you should really think about what it should be. And it doesn't have to be something that you spend a lot of money on. It doesn't have to be something you spend any money on, 
but it should really be something that shows you and your passion and why you're doing this. And the why you're doing this, as Simon Sinek will tell you, is not to make money. It's never about money is a byproduct. It's not a goal. You know, Mike's writing because he could not find any other books that he liked to read. Yeah, yeah. I bought some money eventually, but that wasn't. Never that. once expected to make any money. Yeah, never once expected to make money. So, you know, right. actually, I, that's... I, I, you know, like in other words, I'm not going to tell you don't, you know, absolutely do not do a Kickstarter. I'm saying it on average, mm-hmm. a person who's written their very first book. And, and this is and, and and this is the thing that might be controversial, and I hope I don't insult you, but um, I personally think first books are never very good. I well, agree. that depends. Is it the first book you've ever written, or, or is it the, the first, first book, book you've, you've tried, tried to publish? publish? Yeah, okay. right, yeah. exactly. Right, I, yes. I know a lot of people who who try to publish the first book they've ever written. Right, and with very few exceptions, I think one that I know of, Daniel. Yeah. What's his last name? Daniel Plansky. Daniel Plansky. The first book he ever wrote published. And, and it's, yeah. it's Lowtown. A, Lowtown. It's a damn good book. That's very unusual. You know? We right. all hate him for that, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I have a I have a good friend who he's the one who actually introduced me to uh, Conrad's work, but he he had never written a novel before. He'd written some short stories and he had this kind of voice that I was like, he's just naturally good. It frustrated me. And the first book he wrote, I was like, this is good. Not only that, he didn't pay for editing and I am a grammar nerd. And I read through that thing and I was like, there's nothing wrong with it. There's literally nothing wrong. I go so mad. That's weird. Yeah. Random. Um, he, he, he has a pretty good eye for things like that, but, um, so there's so much more that I want to cover. You, you talked about the, the generational wealth that you're building. Your son, James is getting into the business. Uh I want to speculate that you almost are on the verge of becoming your own version of a publisher. What, how does that sound to your ears? Uh, we're too old. Not, not right. (laughs) And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you why, uh, publishers, are in it to make money. And I never Mm. take a dime, not one cent ever from any publisher, from any author for any reason. It's it's just a rule of mine. Like, so that makes it hard to be a publisher. Yeah. It makes it hard. You know, we we just won't do it, but, but before you get there, let's clarify that the reason we never take money from a author is because it's too easy to exploit people's dreams. Yes. Writers, are passionate they want so desperately to become published they'll do almost anything for that yes. and we I, I have had people try to take advantage of me i know mm-hmm. what it's like so we will never ever do that because of the fact that if someone is trying to take money from you to get you published it's probably nefarious yeah. there's I, I do a lot of classes and they're all free classes i do free classes on publishing all the time mm-hmm. and people come up to me afterwards and they say can i hire you you know, can right. I call you up and, and can you consult with me and can you do my stuff? I like, no, you can't hire me because I right. can't take money from but people. I've been, not, I've been known to work for free. Uh, but so, so, but what, what we're doing is uh, Kickstarters are not easy things. I mean, there's a lot, there's a, right. there's a lot, it, they're a lot of work and it, and it is very time consuming. So what I have done is, although I can't take any money from authors, I see there's a huge need for uh, I want more authors to do Kickstarters because I think I think it's a really smart move and they can't and they really can't navigate it on their own very well. I mean, there's just there's a lot to it, like just 
just figuring out like how to do the postage pricing and you know what the reward level should be and then doing yeah. the fulfillment. I mean, it, it is a lot. And it's completely time consuming. Like I always tell people when you run a Kickstarter, God, do not run a Kickstarter. I think they'll let you do it for 60 days. Don't do that. You'll pull your hair out. Mm-hmm. Like our Kickstarters are always like 20 days, maybe 21 days, 18 days. Um, wow. Because Kickstarters, you get a lot of money at the beginning. You get a lot of money at the end. But in the middle is what they call the doldrums. And the longer mm-hmm. those doldrums play out, it's just excruciating for you because you're like constantly yeah. going to your Kickstarter. Oh, I'm at yeah. $5 today. You know, it's, right. it's just, it's mind sucking. So anyways, I recognize that there was a need for Kickstarters and we have authors come out here in the summertime and we do little writing, writing symposiums and stuff. And they all say, Robin, if you would run a Kickstarter for me, I would do a Kickstarter tomorrow. I'm like, no, I can't do a Kickstarter for you because A, I'm too busy. Right. B, I'm old and my mind is now going and my mind can't executive process like it used to. Hmm. And C, I got way more to do with just Michael's stuff. I I can't consider doing it for anyone else. But that got me thinking of bringing James involved in it. And and it really was because I'm finding it harder and harder to run my own Kickstarters just because I'm having executive processing issues. And I don't want to stop doing Kickstarters because it's very important to our thing. So, so I, I made it analogous to uh, the Titanic sinking and I need to build a life raft before it goes down. Yeah. So my children have become my life raft. My daughter has been involved with the business for a very long time. And, but now my son has taken over all the Kickstarter stuff and will also take over the distribution of authors through the retail chain. Wow. And what this does is opens up some opportunities to provide wealth for authors None of the money comes to us. The money does come to James, but he is he is literally working for it. I mean, it's not like he's right. just like no, yeah, yeah. You know, lighting cigars, you know, with hundred dollar bills. Like he's he does a lot of work. <laughs> fifty dollar bills. It's fifty dollar bills. So, but, but but he's yeah. <laughs> they burn but, cleaner but, you know, actually. It, you know, but but it but it. I think it's a great opportunity. I love win win situations. I think it's great that more authors will be able to do Kickstarters because James is able to provide the service. And because I know so much about Kickstarters and I've been able to brain dump all that I know about Kickstarters into James's brain, I've downloaded it into the matrix. Um, They can be successful Kickstarters. And I think it works for everyone because now James has been able to quit his day job. Uh, He's, he's like me. He's an engineer by training. He Mm. can make very good money as an engineer, but he's got enough of his father's blood in him where he doesn't like working for the man. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. now he can have yeah. his own business doing this and, you know, and make decent money. Um, but the authors, you know, are getting lion's share. So, yeah. so we are facilitating the things that publishers do in the respects that we're getting people into the distribution chain. Uh, but it's a very different thing because we don't curate publishers curate. We don't curate. Right. right. Like, interesting. We you know, we don't edit your book. We don't do the covers. Yep. Your books. Okay. You do yep. that. You do all that. In fact, the authors actually pay for the printing of the book. They pay yes. for it out of the Kickstarter, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the only thing that we're doing is we're helping them monetize yeah. what they're already doing. So they're still doing all the writing. They're still doing their, they, they use their own editors. They use their own cover designers. They, we will actually do the logistics of the printing, but they write the check, you know, yep. when that, check comes due for the printing. Now for them, it's, it's easy because they've already made it through the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter has funded the printing, right? right. So they, you know, they have that money in their pockets. 
Um, I don't take a cent. James takes um, a very, very reasonable fee. I, I based his yeah. fee structure. I told, I told James what he could charge authors. Right. I, yeah. didn't want him, gouging. I didn't want him gouging authors and I wanted it to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I set his price structure of, of what I would pay for these services, you know, yeah. Um, and so I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to speculate one more time that you mm-hmm. actually are starting a publisher. You don't realize you're starting a publisher because it looks differently than what other publishers have done. And that's what happens with true disruption. I hate the word disruption because it's overused, but you actually are doing it uh, right now through your model. You're putting control back in the author's hands and giving them the opportunity to say, okay, if I'm willing to be a business person to a degree, then I can, I can benefit off of this. And so the only thing I'm thinking, if you're listening right now, and this sounds as amazing to you as it does to me, you have to realize you have to be comfortable with doing a little bit of business, whether you have a spouse or a significant other or a brother or sister who can help you with that is a different story. Maybe maybe you are Michael and you have a Robin in your life, but the the, the truth is, is that there's this wide open field right now. There's, there's wild, almost yeah. no saturation, almost none. And it's Nothing. startling how much opportunity there is. So I guess the only other question I have for yes, you is- If you have a woman who's willing to sell her body to medicine- <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it, body. it was just a little injection. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm going to talk to my wife about doing some medical studies. So. Lazy. Um, Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a big favor right now. Click on the follow button in whatever podcast app you're listening on. That way you'll get notifications every time I drop a new episode. And if you still can't get enough, you can go to the show notes, click the link for my newsletter and sign up today. I'll give you one to two interesting pieces of content every single month that you won't hear on the podcast or find laying around on the internet.